Frank bursts into that rap at one point. Oh my oh, god, that's so great! <laughs> Wait, listen to this. Listen to this. Yeah, it's so like, good. Frank became my favorite character in that moment. <laughs> uh, that was so and young, awesome. And young Kirsten's got some moves, man. She gets up there. She's yeah. right. She can run. Gets Jeevan, who's kind of the least likely to. Come on, Jeevan, get into the spirit. Friends, to episode 216 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss the second half of Patrick Somerville's 2021 series, Station Eleven. And joining us on the stage this week is Patrick Swinson. Patrick is a writer, publisher, teacher, and retreat director. His books include The Ultra Thin Man, its sequel, The Ultra Big Sleep, and his latest, Rain Music. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Glad to. So I, I'm curious about multiple things here. Um, I, I interacted with you on Instagram, and you mentioned that you are a fan of uh, Emily St. John Mendel's writing. You have a collection of hardcovers for the book that you sent me a picture of, which I was rather impressed with. Um, and then also you're a teacher, so I'm wondering if you teach Shakespeare at all. Because that's one thing that I felt like I it I was t- trying to remember back from high school when I last covered Hamlet, and I was like I don't remember a lot of this stuff, <laughs> you know I barely remember who some of these characters are. Um, so maybe you're even more versed in that stuff than us. I'm curious to know. Yeah, I have a I teach one of the classes I teach is a advanced placement literature. I do I teach Shakespeare, yes, and the two I typically teach is Macbeth and Hamlet. So nice. I've been teaching Hamlet for. A good number of years. It's one of my favorites. I probably prefer Macbeth just because it's nasty and and short. You know, for my AP <laughs> kids, we can get in. It's the shortest play, and Hamlet's the longest and most psychologically um, difficult in some ways. So, um, yeah, so I know Hamlet pretty well. Nice. Uh, I, I'm going to be touching on you then and figuring out what they were going for because there's a lot of I think interaction with Hamlet in in this show. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about uh, Station Eleven and, and what your thoughts are on uh, the book first, and then maybe the show. My, I talked to my sister, who we chit chat a lot um, about books and such, and um, she says I am way too fanboy for uh, <laughs> for uh, Emily St. John Mandel, and particularly this book. And uh, I read it when it first came out. I was just blown away by it right away. I immediately, literally, for the next year on my summer reading list of books that students could choose for my AP class was, was I added it on there. Um, cause I just thought there was so much going on in there. Yeah. So I picked it up and I reread it, I think almost immediately. And then, yeah, I started going back and saying, she's got three earlier novels. And so I read the first three in order. I mean, in order of publication last night, in Montreal, the singer's gun, Lola quartet. Um, I, they were both. They're all three were wonderful. Um, I don't know. Don't think of them were quite as good as Station Eleven. But that's when I started noticing all the connections. Um, repeating characters. Repeating. Oh yeah, there's repeating characters who who pop in all the time. Um, for example, uh, Miranda is in um, Glass Hotel. 
when when she's doing these shared characters and and uh, is is the world the same? Like, does this pandemic occur in her world, or is that like a is it a multiverse situation? It, a little bit is. Yeah, I, I've I've read things that she's talked about. I it when uh, gosh when Class Hotel came out, I started. It was of course the there were no readings you could go to, so there were lots of Zoom interviews that she did. So I listened to quite a few of them, <laughs> and. Uh, she, she did mention that they're kind of alternate, in some ways, alternate realities, a little bit different because things things happen a little bit differently. That makes sense because it would be a lot to deal with. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, uh, having read this novel as the pandemic, like you know, the onset of the pandemic happened. Was it jumping in your into your mind? Like, was it something that was in the forefront of your mind as as the pandemic was going on for you personally? Yeah, because this came out two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. I think. So. Um, I think I heard the buzz about people picking up her book because of that more than well wow. uh, I was thinking about it at the time. I mean, I knew it was obviously a pandemic novel, and uh, once I started hearing that her sales were skyrocketing, <laughs> which is great for her, you know. But and everybody calling her a prophet, and it's like it's like you know, I wrote it 2014, and the show started before the pandemic too, so she researched it very heavily. But she also said it's not completely scientifically plausible that she said that something, a virus like that would burn itself out before it destroyed 99% of the, con- you know, of the population. You know, and we see with COVID, you know, this. It would probably take a little longer at the very least. And it wouldn't happen in like a day like it does in the book. Yeah, she said it would probably just burn out. That it would, you know. We talked a, about it a little bit, but we're also not experts, so who knows? But um, and that's besides <laughs> the point about the book, anyway. You yeah, know, is is uh, you know it's a device for you know what direction she wanted to go. Yeah, I heard all the hubbub about it, and I didn't reread it once COVID hit. I just had too many other things to do and to, and to read, so I just enjoyed listening. I enjoyed- <laughs> you're a busy man. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I have a couple of extra clones to help me out, but <laughs> it's. Uh, <laughs> you watched the show as it was releasing as well i was wondering um what are your general thoughts on the show and and specifically the second half that we'll be talking about today yeah i mean i left the show yeah i have there's moments where i go ah, i wish i would have done this and because i had such love for the book you know what 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 emily did for that but yeah overall i really liked it and the, most of the change most of the changes i was thumbs up about yeah, there's some big th- big changes that w- were surprising, but I understand a lot of where Summer- Somerville, right? Somerville, mm-hmm. the showrunner, yeah. you know, another Patrick. So he has that yep. going. <laughs> he has that going for them. Yeah, for him and uh, and the leftovers has that going for him too. Um, so yeah, I I really like most of his ideas, and and I've seen some of the reasons why, which were pretty cool, because it's an HBO show instead of a, a novel. So, Luke, where are you at? I wanted to ask, uh, you know, we talked a lot last episode about how we were feeling about the show, maybe, maybe you know, what we were hoping for with the rest of it, but where are you at now? Yeah, uh, so I, I made good on my uh, on my thoughts about wanting to shout it from the mountaintops. I was tweeting about <laughs> it. I've been, I've been trying to tell people, hey, you should all watch this show. It's really good. Um, and I stand by that. I think it is really good. There was a lot to love in this second half. It's always hard when you're coming to uh, coming to a conclusion, and they've done a lot of changes. And because of the changes, it became clear that the show was sort of heading in a different direction than the book does. There's some similarities there, but it's a pretty big departure. And we've we've mentioned this on other uh, adaptations we've covered 
over the years where uh, sometimes you get in someone who adapts the material and has a really strong creative vision about what they want to make and it departs from the original. And that's always going to be um, a little dicey with big fans of the source, right? Like some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to love it. But, but a lot of people who, especially a beloved source, um, are going to hold that really close to them and they're going to they're gonna get mad about any changes. Um, but I love to see like two strong creative visions come together like this. Um, I think it's really interesting what Patrick Somerville did here. Um, this These final five episodes include what I think is my favorite episode of the show um, and also my least favorite episode of the show. Um, and in general, that kind of matches up with where I'm at. Like I felt like uh, for the most part, I like the direction he goes in. Uh, I do think there's a couple things that were very ambitious that maybe didn't quite work as well as I would have liked them to. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious to know where you two are going to be at for the individual things. And we'll talk about them along the way, because it could be that I maybe missed something or I'm misinterpreting something or or what have you. So I'm not I'm not like uh, really adamant about that feeling. But uh, my, my general thought is uh, still very, very good. But there was a few sort of missteps for me personally or, or things that didn't quite hit the mark I think he was going for. Um, and we can, we can talk about those uh, in, in specifics later. Uh, but what about you, James? Where are you at? Yeah, so at the end of last episode, I talked about how we burned up a lot of what was in Emily St. John Mandel's book. And I was kind of tempering my expectations, kind of thinking about how things might be different. And I, I trusted the vision that Somerville had, and I was excited to see what was going to happen next. But going in, I was reserved. And Luke was talking about how much he loved the show, and I really, really enjoyed it. I think he was a little higher than I was, like, even on the first half. But I, I came out of the second half, maybe because of expectations, really blown away. Uh, you know, there are some there are some changes, like Luke is talking about, that maybe don't feel complete. But just as a whole story here, I felt myself more emotionally invested, which I think was sort of what Patrick Somerville was asking of his audience is like, get more in invested in the connections, get more invested in these people, because some of the characters are have um, a lot more to them. They, we, we explore them more. It is very clever the way that they crafted the story for all of these character beats to be so interwoven in almost a convenient way. But I liked it for what the story is. It, it like it's this story of hope. Patrick Somerville said that Station Eleven is a story about how everybody is connected and you just need to find the right frame to be able to see how sometimes. And I think that's like very specific to his vision of what Station Eleven is, not what the novel was. So I think he, he was making the decision to be different from the novel. And I think it was successful. Like there were moments that I felt couldn't happen and then did happen and were emotionally satisfying, even though they happened. And um, overall, I walk away just having gone on this emotional journey, exploring some of what Emily St. John Mandel was was exploring, but really changing the story in a way that's it's entirely its own thing. And I even made the comparison to Leftovers. And I want to make sure that I say like this, this show is like it's got maybe some things that made me think of Leftovers, but it's entirely its own thing. It's not very similar to Leftovers at all. And um, yeah, I just I, I think some of the ways that the story was changed, they leaned more heavily into the Hamlet story. And I think that was clever and cool as well, because you get some of Emily St. John Mandel, and she's referencing Hamlet, and then you take sort of the structure and some of the story elements of Hamlet, and you you add that into the story to, to sort of build this conclusion. So he's drawing on not just 
the original novel, but also Hamlet itself to, to tie the novel together, to tie the story together in the show. And I, I found it to be satisfying. Yeah. And in fact, I think in the novel itself, she only mentions Hamlet briefly, you know, I don't remember that maybe they have a production of it, you know, obviously the character connections are in the novel too. Uh, not not for everybody, and they actually, yeah, you know, and Somerville added some, but then also, you know, some of the connections are in other books, <laughs> as you oh, as you find out too. But that's that's just slightly. I guess I, I guess what I'm getting at with t- highlighting the emotion so much is that like I cried multiple times in the show, and the novel didn't move me to tears, but I, it was I felt the emotional journey, of course, because it's a great novel, and and it it definitely leans into like the psyche of like society going into this sort of thing. And something about this was this story in the show is just a little more grounded. I remember feeling watching the show, you know, if your audience see me, they'd see me doing this with my arms crossed. Yeah. And prove it to me only, you know, prove it that this is going to be good only because I love the book so, so much, you know, and I had emotional moments in the book, but it's been so long ago now. I don't remember, you know, Hundred percent, you know, if I had tears flowing down my face during the from the book or not, but I certainly did a couple of times during the show. So, um, and I'll be interested to hear if uh, if your least favorite Luke is is mine also. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, of these last, uh, you're talking about the last five, right? Yeah, the, the last, last five, five. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think there is something to be said, and we've talked about this before. There, crying when you're reading a book like you kind of have to be emotionally in a certain space you have to be able to devote a level of focus you have to be comfortable in your environment there's a lot of things that have to go into that actually happening um but when you're watching a movie um they hit you with this multimedia you know powerhouse of music and sound and sights and story and like everything can hit you and like they've they've turned this into a science they know how to get people to cry you know they TV commercials are good at doing this. Um, so they know how to do it. And uh, it, it is like, I'm almost powerless to it at this point. I'm like, yeah, if you really want to get me to cry, you can get me to cry. And there's a difference, too, if, of how, you, as you mentioned, how you read the book, but in the amount of time, too. I find I'm more emotionally attached and can weep in my chair if I've been reading it in a few, I read it in a few days. You know, or in some cases, you know, I'd look up and like, I just read this whole thing and I haven't done anything else today, you know. Um, and that's the same thing, you know, with a, with a film, a series, you're just going back to back to back and they're manipulating you all the way through. And you have no choice but to sit and watch at least the episode. <laughs> of course, you, in these days, streaming, you can pause and stuff like that. But, yeah, there's something to be said for it for sure. Yeah. Are we ready to get into the episodes themselves, James? Yeah, absolutely. So episode six is called Survival is Insufficient. Kirsten sets off in search of Alex, who has disappeared after an attack orchestrated by the Prophet. Alex is discovered to have returned to Pink Tree with the group, but Kirsten ultimately decides to go after the Prophet alone, as she feels responsible for the deadly attack on Gil and the death threats against the entire traveling symphony. Sarah finally agrees to take the group to the Museum of Civilization to perform when she learns the other half of their group is there. In the woods, Kirsten meets with the Prophet, who is wounded, and his group of children who welcome her to their group. The Prophet convinces Kirsten the symphony is in danger from the Museum of Civilization, and she eventually agrees to help them gain access to to the community at Severn City Airport. On their journey, Kirsten and the group is attacked by bandanas. So I'll just go ahead and say this was the one to me that was a little weaker. Um, probably my least favorite episode, um, and I'll, I'll go over the reasons why, but mostly it circles around Kirsten and the Prophet, 
and their interactions with each other. I found myself frustrated with Kirsten and not believing some of the choices she was making. Um, I, I felt like the show did a lot of work early on to establish the prophet as a very creepy, just just like don't trust anything he's saying. He's a liar. Um, he he's a villain, and he's and they set him up as using child soldiers who are detonating themselves with mines. Right. Um, there is one line I think in this episode where he kind of says that maybe there was someone else telling a different story and that's why the kids blew themselves up wasn't his fault I guess Um, but it's not very convincing this is a liar so I didn't believe him and this begins what I think is 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 an arc for them trying to kind of rehabilitate Tyler as a character and make us feel for him uh, want him to have some sort of resolution with his family and feel like he's actually a misunderstood kid who, who, who went down the wrong path and all this stuff. Um, but it, it was tough because he's very different in the book. He's definitely just more of a villain. Um, but even within the context of the show, I didn't think they did a good job on selling me that Kirsten would buy this. And she, she kind of does, even though she, she doesn't like, she, she definitely is skeptical, but like, she at the very least is going along with him and and willing to take him to the museum with her and potentially put in danger all the people that she loves and cares about. And um, a lot of that, I just, I don't know. I just, I had trouble believing it. And uh, that character, that like dissonance with what I was seeing on screen and what I believed in the character um, set me up to, to have issues with this episode in particular. Yeah, you're talking about Kirsten, literally first time he's, she sees him on the log knifing him right away without yeah, hesitation. I, which I loved. Right? <laughs> which was which was great, you know. <laughs> I mean not great. <laughs> no, <Nah>, it was great. <laughs> so yeah, my my problems with Tyler's character arc are the biggest biggest question I have in the whole series. But um and it's not all because of how he changed, because there's obviously I mean how Somerville changed him because there was obvious reasons for him to change him. It's like um you know, even on HBO you know, dealing with you know child rape and all that would be a little bit would be a little bit difficult to go. The implication is that's not happening in the show, at least that no, I, that's that, right. that yeah. we were seeing. Yeah, no, he. That, yeah, instead he's making this army of of kids, and you know, there's something to be said for the fact that he was trying to be, you know, more of a a father figure, a parent figure for these for these kids, and give them some some hope because he didn't have a great childhood himself. He but, was kidnapping a lot of them too but he was kidnapping them and <laughs> yep. he was strapping them up so and brainwashing them and, and yep. so you know if you're going to have a villain you're going to have a villain and what it ends up is you really don't have a villain in this in this in this show um i mean in the book he gets dispatched fairly quickly and not even kirsten does it but if i remember right yeah um, it's one of the one but, of his kids yeah but I don't know. So that 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 bothered me. How fast exactly? You know how fast she she uh, she agreed with him. If again, I was just thinking like, well, there you go. You got the knife against his neck. Do it, and then just tell the the kids that that he's sleeping. Give him some moments, and then run out of the run the hell out of there. <laughs> you know, and get to the. She knows the way to get to the airport. She can figure it out maybe. But and then that whole idea then from then on is to try to redeem this character. And uh, and if you're talking seriously about the connections that Tumberville is making to Hamlet, then that's a problem. That is 
probably my biggest takeaway from Tyler's character is I think there was this this decision that was made in the writer's room to say, we're going to take the prophet and we're going to take Hamlet and we're somehow going to smash these two characters together. And this is the transition period here. This episode six is rather yeah. like the prophet story, him being a villain and all that stuff is sort of over at this point as he's starting to turn over a new leaf. And then this from here on, we're getting the idea that he was this like, disgruntled son or whatever you want to call Hamlet who who would then go on to be like weird and people couldn't figure him out or why he was doing the things he was doing but ultimately it was all like in the the hopes to to get some sort of revenge for what happened to his father or something like that and and I think that that's sort of something they're playing with there to varying degrees of success I definitely agree that I felt some of the decisions that Kirsten was making were irrational. Going off by herself, I, I I bought. I'm like, okay, she's gonna go off and she's gonna fight. She's done that. Then how quickly she flicks that switch to to then saying like, oh, maybe maybe he's misunderstood, and it's just because of the Station Eleven. It's kind of flimsy, you know. Just because he knows Station Eleven as well isn't quite enough for me. Um, but I bought into it enough to where I, I could. Because they did build up Kirsten to not be infallible. Like I like there was enough there for me to think that maybe she's making bad decisions, but yeah. you know, it was frustrating. She still. just witnessed two children with minds strapped to their bodies detonate and kill someone that she ostensibly loved and cared about like a day before. And yeah, day he's before. just gonna yeah. give a quick explanation, one line, and then she's not gonna like immediately. <laughs> I don't know. Like I was like, she's way more likely to just immediately kill this guy at this point than I think she was originally. Yeah, I don't know. I it, agree. Yeah, but but I mean, it's the story they wanted to tell. I think it's for the reason you highlighted. They really wanted to lean into like we're gonna take it this Shakespearean tragedy of I guess Hamlet, and we're gonna try and put it in this book and in this show uh, at the same time that we're doing everything else. Um, and, and obviously you get some rewards for doing that, but, um, I think you have to kind of fit like, you know, foot some stuff and, and hand wave some stuff to make it work. And I can see that here. Right. And yet, and this will be come up probably in the, in the last episode, the finale, you know, so I won't bring it here, but there's one thing is missing <laughs> in the finale. If you're really talking about Hamlet, um, um, and those family, family dynamics that's missing that would have actually made it even more um, okay for me interesting yeah I, I definitely want to touch back in on that because i don't remember hamlet super well like i read it in high school but it's been a long time and uh i don't necessarily remember each character and what they do in a nutshell it's the actual you know it's a tragedy yeah i mean right it's one of shakespeare's tragedies so should end very poorly for everyone involved basically <laughs> yeah how do tragedies normally end <laughs> everyone dies i usually keep a body you know for hamlet i keep a body count on the <laughs> you know, you know, first person, you know, okay, there's, there's Ophelia, you know, or there's Polonius, sorry, and then Ophelia, and then Gildingstern and Rosencrantz, and, which actually isn't confirmed till the end of the play. And, you know, it's like, kids are going, my God, they're dropping like flies. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so I had a couple little specific moments I wanted to kind of ask about because, you know, Patrick Somerville is making the show with intention and everything he's doing is for reasons. There's a lot of, you know, symbols and metaphors that are that are playing out. There's a few I was picking up on and I wanted to kind of ask what your what your thoughts are on them. And it, maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to read too much in. But um, Sarah, the uh, the uh, director uh, or the, the conductor. conductor, I guess, is her. Yeah, the conductor. Um, she gets her glasses stepped on at the end of the previous, maybe two episodes ago. Um, and she gets them back and they're broken. 
And then she ends up having to toss them aside and she gets new glasses, but they don't work. And for the rest of the show, she's having tr- like she can't really see and she's she's very, you know, she's not in control anymore, really. And to me, whenever I see vision, maybe it's because we covered Blade Runner or something, but like whenever I see anything related to vision and eyes and glasses, I always start thinking like, oh, they're going for a metaphor here, right? This is, you know, if someone's blind, they're blind to something. And so I'm wondering, is this is this a metaphor for Sarah being uh, blind to something in particular or uh, or can she not see a path forward? Like what what do you think they're going for with with this vision stuff? Uh, if anything, I think you gave it to us on a on a silver platter right there. <laughs> you think I'm right? I think it's that she lost Gil and she doesn't see a way forward. Okay. Yes, and and it's a nice segue as as we slowly lead toward Kirsten becoming the head of the group. Right. Mm-hmm. By the time you know, by the last thing she said, "God dang it, I'm the director." Yeah, there's um, a transition of leadership going on here for sure. Yeah, you're and Luke, you're totally right about the you know the imagery. Um, as we my AP is coming up by Friday or. We're going to be talking about Oedipus Rex, and there's a whole bunch there about, you know, the people. But then it, in Oedipus, it's the people who are blind are the ones who really who really can see. You know, the the, the serious, the, the blind prophet. You know, he 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 knows a lot of what's going on, and uh, you know, at the end, Oedipus ex- exiles himself from Thebes when he finds out the truth, and he you know, blinds himself. Um, so. You know, you're going to talk a little bit about light and the darkness there too. So she's in the yeah. dark, and um, she may she may even know know the truth, and she's she's ready. She's hanging on, but she's ready to pass on. You know, pass it on and pass on. Okay, I have another one I want to ask you about, and I won't lead <laughs> okay. anybody this time. Um, and that is the uh, when when they go to the prophet's lair, <laughs> it lair. is this factory that you see in the distance, and you see like. You know, you see the smokestacks. I don't think they were smoking, but you see the smokestacks, and you're in this otherwise lush environment, and you're going there. Um, why? Why is he in a factory here? This isn't a detail from the book that I remember, at least. Um, so, why did they choose? You think to to have him be in this this rundown factory? Uh, possibly be because he is. Uh, it's that, that is interesting because he's so against the before, you know, and that the factory is a it's an image of the before. Right. It's but it's broken down. I don't know if I if I've attached any significance to it, but other than it's got shelter, you know. But it's a relic for him, and he, you know, he pushes against the before, but at the same time, deep down, he's still connecting with it, and he's sort of putting on a front for these these kids and like making them believe there actually genuinely is no before. But he knows that he's lying to them, so maybe it's some sort of like he's as much as he is trying to escape the past it's still there like the, this this place is still there this is still shelter for him so it, i don't know it also could be transitional too. the fact that you know he's if if somerville's working on redeeming him you know and you got kirsten overly um trusting believe, trusting thank you him, yeah you know okay I'll i'll help you um on that path to redemption then maybe that's like symbol of you know the the symbol of the past and he's hanging out there maybe but yeah Mm -hmm. i like that you know and this one i didn't have like a clear answer for i just felt like it was an intentional choice um whenever i see something like that against like beautiful nature and then you have something that's kind of ugly and modern and and industrial i'm like okay well they're doing that on purpose because yeah it's tied to maybe the destruction um and maybe everything wrong with the modern world right and um, the fact that he is 
there. Um, I don't know. Like maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it's like he's not as distant from it as he likes to think he is, or he actually is embodying something uh, destructive from the past, even though he thinks he's not. Well, and nature is destructive, right? Like nature, like maybe human nature is also because like nature has overcome this man-made structure over time, and Are all know, the maybe places, it's, yeah, it's a it's a like commentary on destruction being a natural thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think those are the things that are there, and I, and they want their viewer to be thinking about that. I have a moment that I wanted to bring up though, uh, and it's important to sort of what we were talking about with with Kirsten and Tyler. And it's these conversations they're having over fire, talking about Station Eleven. And it's interesting because like Kirsten is realizing how similar their situations were. They both were, they both, there's even this line about um, Tyler says like, I got this comic book, I got the comic book from someone when I needed it most. And it's very clear that that's exactly what happened with Kirsten as well. And so like the similarities in the story, and we talked in our book coverage about like interpretation of stories. And there's the moment where they like Kirsten is dead set. She knows who's on in the suit in Station Eleven and tells him. And he's like, "I never read it that way." And just how funny that is to to comment on media in that way and the way that people misinterpret things sometimes. And how even Tyler was probably misinterpreting the story because he didn't know who was in the suit. Um, that I just thought that was a, an interesting moment to note. And I think Tyler gets it when he's needs it most. And I'm not sure about Kirsten because it's it's a gift in the middle of a uh, happy time for her before Arthur's gone and stuff too. And you know he's she's his understudy, you know, and knows the lines clear. And and uh, so, so obviously she's going to um, look at it with a, through a different lens. I think as a as a Shakespearean actor. Yeah, it, it kind of it. I feel like it does help her overall, but there's some implication that it haunts her a little bit too, right? Like she's, she's, we later on, we see her reading too much and she's, she's distracted by it and she's so obsessed with it. Um, yeah, I, I do like that. That's something that Patrick Somerville took from the book and said, I'm going to further explore the ways art affects us in, as individuals. The same piece of media can be interpreted different ways, affect people in different ways and have big implications uh, for the real world. Um, and we see that here as like it's one of the key things that motivates both our protagonist and our antagonist, right? It's the same comic book. And don't they use it as they don't they use lines from it for as code too? Yeah, Kirsten's in, so um, intrigued by the story and so sucked into the story that she can't live in the real world. And we're seeing that Tyler is using the same thing on these other children. They're so sucked into it. They're they're preying on their their childish belief in like you know the supernatural and their imagination and making them believe that it's real. Yeah. Well, let's get into the next episode. So episode seven is called Goodbye, My Damaged Home. Kirsten revisits memories from her younger self, remembering her time with Jeevan and his brother Frank's apartment at the beginning of the virus outbreak. Prior to their arrival, Frank dumps his stash of heroin after a distressing phone call with his sister, Sia. Jeevan later finds his drug paraphernalia, which leads to an argument between them. Eventually, their food supply dwindles which prompts Jeevan to want to leave the apartment with Kirsten, but Frank refuses. Frank eventually reveals his reasoning, which is that he believes Jeevan cannot survive supporting both him and Kirsten due to his hip injury. Before they can leave, and during the performance of Kirsten's play, an intruder attempts to take over the apartment, killing Frank in the process and nearly killing Jeevan. In the present, Kirsten struggles with being poisoned by an attacker after the bandanas attack. 
Yeah, so th- this is, uh, we didn't really touch on that, but she gets uh, stuck with some darts, I think, and she's got some sort of poison that takes her down at the end of the episode after she kills multiple guys. Um, she's her, the, the kill count for Kirsten is definitely higher in the show. <laughs> she's, no kidding. She's full-on knife ninja, which I guess they should have predicted because it's TV, right? Considering um, where they cut off, it was she was rounded by, what, five of them? Yeah, she kills you five know? guys somehow, yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay. kill them all. <laughs> and doesn't remember it, yeah. Um, but yeah, she, uh, so she goes into this dream and this is like, I I think at this point it's probably kind of a trope, but I, this is one of my favorite tropes if it is, um, in, in, in like visual media and it's having a character be present in their adult body (laughs) in a, in a memory from the past, be able to interact with it in weird ways um, try and affect it and be unable to. Like, there's an inherent tragedy there of like wanting to change and not being able to. Um, and then it's like you get to be all weird because it's a dream and you can affect things. And then the, the visuals that you can pull off are so clever. Um, you can have these scenes playing out with a character in the background, and you can you can just do all kinds of cool shit. Um, this was my favorite episode of the series. So back to back, I it went from 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 least favorite to favorite. Um, there are a lot of great ones that follow this too, but this for me just it hit all the notes I wanted. It was it was probably the most creative episode. I, I really felt like Somerville was flexing here. It reminded me of some of my favorite episodes from The Leftovers that do similar things like this. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm just a sucker for this kind of stuff, and I thought it was extremely well done. It's like visual introspection. <laughs> it was one of my favorites too. Um, by the way, the preview the first week, the first one. Um, Episode six was not my least favorite. Okay, uh, but but we certainly all the weaknesses. But the one that was my least favorite is also got some really great parts. So, but anyway, yeah, yeah we'll yeah. talk about so, it. So yeah, I love this. I love this a lot, and uh, you know, it fits nicely with Hamlet too because mm-hmm. you know there are ghosts. You know, and, yeah, and old Kirsten actually you know is conversing. <laughs> With her younger self. Yeah, like, that's great, right? And, you know, so then you go, like, well, she's dreaming this, but does she have a memory of, of seeing herself, you know, during the time she was in the apartment? Um, probably not. It's just part of a dream, you know? And I think all of it is, as well, as Kirsten could be trying to fill in details, because, you know, the, the highlight climax of that scene with him getting killed, um, with Frank getting killed, is she's in the closet. I mean, she right. or she's in a room. She's locked up. She doesn't see that happen, so she's... She's recreating that, and I assume she even later on tells her, you know, maybe perhaps some of what happened. But right, you're talking um, about like trying to figure out how she could know some of this stuff because we get her in scenes that she's not a part of in the real world, and she's like listening to conversations she wasn't privy to. Um, And I think that opens the door up for maybe Frank's a ghost in the real world. Um, But but it's not it's an open interpretation. But with the way we see him talking with Jeevan later. And the references to Hamlet, maybe Frank's a ghost, uh, and and he's communicating to her in some way via this dream, um, telling her about conversations she wasn't there for. Yeah, and Mandel likes ghosts. There's ghosts in most of her most of her novels. Cool. Uh, or, or strange strange things that happen. So this episode destroyed me. Um, yeah, <laughs> emotionally. Oof. Oh yeah. There's one moment I want to highlight too. It's like this moment where they're still watching TV. The society's still going on. Kirsten's in the room and she's doing, I think she's reading her book or something like that. And it's Christmas, I believe, or uh, very soon to be Christmas. And yeah, they got ugly it's basically, 
Everybody yeah, they all have sweaters on, and it's clear that the world is over. Everything's over, and they shut the TV off, and they're just like, I, I was hit by just like the emotional weight of like being an adult in that world and realizing you have a kid here who can't grasp the concept of the fact that the world is over and you're trying to grapple with it. And then Kirsten starts singing and just the innocence of not understanding it and like being that like light in that moment, but also, I, you know, it's just further highlighting how like children can't understand these concepts and they're like being forced to grow up in this pandemic or in this, in this apocalypse they have to become adults a lot faster and like they're trying their best frank and jeevan are trying their best to let her be a, a child as long as she can uh and then obviously that comes crashing down at the end of this episode and um the subtext of the performances within the performances which is also a hamlet thing right like they're putting on a performance play within a play a play within a play all of those are my favorite scenes from this show is anytime they're they're performing Hamlet, they're performing Kirsten's play here. And just like he, he, Frank is saying goodbye to Jeevan in this. And it's so emotionally heavy. And Kirsten, again, is just too innocent to really understand the gravity of it. Um, and she writes his death scene, obviously Frank's death scene, which was which was just so like gut wrenching. Uh, overall, this this episode is just amazing. And, and how. Uh, Frank bursts into that rap at one point. Oh my oh, god, that's so great! <laughs> Wait, listen to this. Listen to this. Yeah, oh, it's so like... good. Frank became my favorite character in that moment. Uh, that and was young, so and awesome. Kirsten's got some moves, man. She gets up there. She's yeah. right. She can run. Gets Jeevan, yeah. who's kind of the least likely to come on. Jeevan, get into the spirit. There's right. a karaoke scene in the leftovers that that kind of reminded me of oh, a little bit. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's 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 so good. And I was wondering if that maybe that guy's a real rapper, like in real life, because he it sounded like it was him performing, and he was very good. I think um, I, I read somewhere it's somebody else's song. Oh, uh, well, I read something somewhere else, but I can't remember who it was, or it was a character I didn't know, or a singer I didn't know. The the uh, track is Excursions by a Tribe Called Quest. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tribe Called Quest. Somerville was saying that he killed it. Like he was he was like, I can't remember if it's exactly just one take, but it didn't take a lot. Like wow. he he crushed that whole that rap so like good. all the way through. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, again, we talked about this last time, like having a little bit of a a break from something that can be otherwise very emotionally oppressive. It, it's a nice little break in this episode that's very That heavy. is also Shakespeare. That, you know, a comic relief. Right yeah. or comic relief or yeah or pathos you know pathos for the victims you know for Frank in particular um, to make that even more hor- horrifying when it happens. Um, one thing I thought going back to uh, when you were talking about the first the Christmas there the song first Noel right is what she sings which you know a young kid herself you wouldn't think that would be the the choice. Um, but then I thought the first Noel, the first Christmas, and you know this is your one first Christmas of a new life, and, and realizing that, that things are changing after that, that uh, that program that they're watching. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. yeah, that's true. These are all choices, right? Like he's doing all this on purpose. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to. There's a line that they give to each other here that I wrote down that I thought is backs up what you were saying, James. Uh, he says, "We're adults. We pretend we're not scared." Um, and I thought that was that thought was really good, right? Like it's the difference between the kid, right? Who who you said like maybe doesn't know, um, and but is allowed to be scared versus adults in this situation who do know what's going on but have to pretend that it doesn't scare them to benefit the children, right? And uh, just that dynamic is an interesting one. And 
I'm sure one that a lot of people who have lived through COVID can can relate to, right? As we're especially if you have kids, like trying to be strong for your kids or be strong for whoever while you are actually secretly freaking out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a couple little notes here I have from this episode that I want to touch on. One of them is I'll just briefly kind of a throwaway, but um, I think this, I call this the Dr. House effect. Um, he uses a cane wrong. I'm pretty sure in this episode, it's a hip injury, not a leg. So I'm not as confident, but um, he, he constantly is walking with the cane as like an extension of the bad leg he has. And that's not how you use canes as someone who has used one a lot in the past, a nose. Um, and I think this is a remnant from house who famously, they made a decision for whatever reason, they thought it looked better to have him use the cane wrong for the character. And then I think that like I've been seeing it in TV and movies ever since. Um, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it happened before that, but for whatever reason, p- directors seem to think it looks better to do it that way. Um, Wasn't part of his whole thing that like he was sort of a liar too. They're like the leg would, would like he, some of the time he wouldn't necessarily need the cane. I mean, that doesn't make you a liar though. Sometimes you don't need, you know, like I'm someone who occasionally uses a cane too. So, well, what I mean is like he, like I thought that some of the time he was playing it up, his character, yeah. because it was, that was within his character. Maybe they That's did make him I a drug thought. user and, and some stuff. So it reminds me of the old, the old guy in the Game of Thrones. So it was, it was always, oh, Pycelle, uh, I think. Pycelle and had the chains on. And then they have that one episode where, you know, he's just, you know, limber. Think, yeah, hanging out, with, hanging out with the ladies, and then he puts it back on, and then he goes. Like, oh. I actually, I, yeah, I didn't think that that was intentional. I actually think that this was just a decision somebody made along the way. Of they thought it looked, they think it looks right for him to do it that way. It's more, it's like more dramatic or something. And I would never want to. I've never realized because you know I don't. I don't yeah. use a, I've never used a cane. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. most people probably don't and don't care. So let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a, a a part that I wanted to highlight that I found really emotional for me, and it's the very end of the episode. Um, we get the final scene of Kirsten sitting in the room with Frank and he's dead on the bed. And this is something she didn't actually experience, right? Like she's on the other side of the door, I think, and talking to herself and telling her, you know, you don't need to come in here. And then the scene transitions to a modern current moment, I guess, or, or imagining of a moment where the room is full now of green um, as, as, as something as life has come in and grown all over the place. And, and now he's a skeleton um, on the bed. And um, that that moment was powerful. And I think it, it touches on some of the stuff we were talking about with the factory, maybe, and talking about the new life and the, 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 the life from death, the growth from death, the, the, the sort of cycle that um, we all live in, right? Um, and, uh, I felt like it, it was, it was a, a moment where they didn't say anything and it was all just on screen visually and, and it still you didn't have to. Yeah. It was, it was perfect. Yeah. And because of adding out of that is the fact that, okay, this is in the moment, but in the modern day, but her, her arm is almost black. Yeah. Right. Cause it's still, it reminds us it's still, it's still the dream. And we've seen all that green and all the different, um, repeating, um, Scenes, repeating uh, settings, right? And Timberville's masterful at that because we're cutting back, we're seeing the before and the after, and we see that growth. We see the death, but we see the the growth, which is an outcropping, sorry, of of the the, the pandemic killed everyone. But it's still, but the Earth is still growing. It does seem to be accurate too. I, I know that there were, I think the Discovery Channel put out some sort of show about what would happen if like all humans were just gone all of a sudden uh, to our world. 
And yeah, I think the 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 thing is within a year or two, like the forest would retake the cities. Like it, the, the the level of growth, uh, I think people underestimate how quickly that would start happening. Yeah. Or they probably say, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, during the pandemic, we saw that, right? Like some waterways cleared up and like we saw like new new creatures in areas we hadn't in such a long time. Air yep. quality better. You know, nobody was driving as much. Yeah, during those early days. One little behind the scenes thing I found. Mackenzie Davis said that this is the first episode that they shot. So she and Matilda Lawler mm. got a great chance to sort of work through the character together and find the ways that they were going to interpret some of those oh, things. Nice. Wow, that's that's perfect. I yeah, that. that's good. I was thinking about that. You told me that they shot in Chicago and then they had to shut down and then later they shot somewhere else. And I kept thinking like, OK, whenever we're in Chicago, this stuff was shot before the pandemic actually happened. And then the stuff that's shot elsewhere was after COVID actually happened. <laughs> yeah. That moment of them, like the, the split with the doorway and then the younger and the older self leaning against the door with Frank's room, like that'll stick with me for sure. Like that was, you know, powerful stuff. She's so good. Is it Matilda? They is the young, young Kirsten. So uh, moving into episode eight now, it's called Who's There? Kirsten and the Prophet continue on their way to Severn City Airport, where the rest of the traveling symphony are being held in quarantine prior to their performance. After Miles finds the duo out in the woods, Clark welcomes Kirsten and the Prophet to the airport community, but forces them to perform a scene from a play to prove they are actors. The duo perform a sequence from Station Eleven. Afterwards, Kirsten reunites with the traveling symphony, but is devastated to learn Sarah has suffered a heart attack, and no one has seen her since. Prior to the outbreak, Clark fights with Arthur, before meeting his young son Tyler for the first time. In the present, Kirsten discovers the Prophet's connection to the Museum of Civilization in the Station Eleven graphic novel. The Prophet enacts a plan of revenge against Clark at the airport, and reunites with his mother Elizabeth, but refuses to acknowledge them as he destroys the Museum of Civilization. Okay, so uh, I, I apologize for doing this, but I have to go back to last episode for a minute. I was looking at my notes, and there was a, a part that I wanted to talk about that we didn't, and then we can move on to episode eight. Um, but that, okay, so the play that is given at the end of the episode, it is itself an adaptation through the character uh, of Kirsten. She is adapting the comic into a play that we're going to perform in a show that is itself an adaptation of a novel. <laughs> so we got like adaptation within adaptation within adaptation. There's a lot of that going on here. Yet I think the whole scene is a demonstration of the power of that because she's adapting it and it's a death scene and she's particularly having them play it out. I think with some knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes and about whether or not Frank's going to go. Um, or maybe just cosmically. I'm not sure if, she, if the character actually knows she's doing this. She was at least saying goodbye to him one right. way or another. And um, to me, that like says something about adaptation. Like a screenwriter like Patrick Somerville, who's writing this, has to be thinking about what he's doing in adapting an, a book and how he's reinterpreting it to tell a story that he wants to tell. And so he has this character, Kirsten, do the same thing to this fictional comic and adapt it into a play, another form, and then it can play out in a way that means something to the characters that's different than the intention of Miranda who wrote who wrote the book. Um, and I was just like, my mind was blown when I started thinking about all these levels of adaptation. And that's something we talk about all the time on this show, so I felt like I had to highlight that. And shout out to the actors, because like the level of difficulty to sort of grapple with those layers of adaptation, like, okay, so 
you know, an actor performing in a play that's self-aware of what's going on within the scene and saying goodbye to someone. And then on top of that, they're actually acting for the performance of this television show that they're being hired onto is like, like high level of, and, and like across the board, this entire cast killed it. Like there were no weak, weak links. Okay, we can move on to, to the next episode. <laughs> I had to mention that. That is cool. And it's only a section. She just chooses the death scene. Yeah. You know, and then there's only one scene at the end. They yeah. have at the end, too. It's not those. Well, it's and Frank, Frank literally dies in this. <laughs> right, right. You know, basically at the end of this scene. So that's uh, what's great because he's yeah. going like, it was the one, I remember the original trailer that it shows him in that thing saying, this has been the happiest time of my life. You know, it's like, that's weird. And he's dressed up in a, right? And, uh, you know, and then you see it when it comes in in that episode at this particular point. Going like, oh, that's where that's from. It's like, oh, it's great. I gets repeated later in the film but or in the series there's another performance within a performance here and that's between tyler and kirsten for clark and it's this powerful moment where i think clark is remembering the magic of performance and remembering the magic of storytelling in this way um and that scene was so tense and there's (laughs) so much going on in it because elizabeth slips in at one point and obviously tyler's trying to steal his his old gadget back um from the museum and uh it's it's just that that scene is amazing and Clark is at the center of it at all times so they're on the outskirts in that tower sort of distracting him on either end and it's theater so, in the round you know it's like what do I yeah. watch what do I watch you know yeah and they're 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 in these these like uh, hazmat suit looking things and they're trying to give this performance I'm like that had to be tough on you know the real life actors and they're giving a Shakespearean performance of a non Shakespearean thing because they're adapting this comic again for for this moment. Um, and then there, but then it has all of these like other things that are going on within the story. Uh, wow. It's just so many layers. Like, I don't even know how you, you wrap your head. Well, there's references that. too that I know you, I remember who you are. And it was like in the station 11 comic when she, and she's looking right at Clark when she yeah. says that line, I remember who you are. And it, I don't think she realizes right then. Oh, right? God. Yeah. I love those little flashback moments where he ties something in the present to something that happened in the past. Yeah. It just pops up a little bit for a mm-hmm. second. That's something that can be hard. Like you can't really do that in fiction writing, or it would be it would just be different. Whereas that's something that you can do in in these visual mediums. You can just have a, a few frames almost of just a moment, and then you can you can just kind of be like, "There's a little mysterious moment," and we'll we'll circle back to that and explain it later. Um, love that. But stuff. see, this is all out of a distrust. Obviously, we've 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 seen this distrust from the beginning of Clark and anybody out from the outside, right? From the very beginning of of the show right i was gonna say did you guys see his turn coming because i i didn't like his turn to sort of taking that power structure and then now sort of he wants what's best for the community but at the same time he's sort of there's a little bit of that like do it because i said so mentality to him is he is he uh i wanted to ask you patrick is he because later on he says i'll be claudius i think it's claudius right the king and there's a lot of crown imagery going on. He wants to wear the crown. He can't wear the crown. He takes it off when, when uh, you know, Arthur comes in and the flashback. But then, you know, he wants to be wearing it. He's wearing it at the end. And I felt like they're definitely positioning him here as Claudius. And because of that, it introduced an element of, like, arrogance and um, confidence that I was surprised to see from Clark, at least especially the Clark from the novel. Um, and, and this felt like a, a change and they ended up carrying it through, but, um, yeah, wh- where were they going I re- with that? I remember liking, not liking Clark 
in this in the this adaptation as much obviously it's completely different in the book um he's very helpful he's much more helpful in the book or in yeah in the book he's i mean there's nothing really to not like about clark in the book like he's he's very likable yeah he is and um but you know he goes on a bender once well yeah <laughs> even in the first half of the show i felt like he was pretty likable yeah, all the him. way through like yeah, yeah, there wasn't much to 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 say that he wasn't. So that 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 turn was effective. Yeah, he was a very. I mean, he did what a good leader would do at the beginning. You know, that do we see that with his uh, lover too? It's like you you did that. It's you had a, you gave a couple of speeches that were great. You know, and he has good speeches. You know, he's got he's got the chops. He's got the actor chops, and he's let that all that go. And like you mentioned earlier, you see, like he's realizing this is a moment that he's missed. He's missed this watching those two perform and we see his fall i think in the past right like we're this is where we get a lot of the flashbacks of him interacting with arthur and then he starts drinking again after he'd been sober which is that's always powerful when people do that in the show like they i feel like tv shows love to do this right like someone's been sober for however many years and you see him grab that drink and you're like no yeah um and he does it and then we see like his darkest moment i think right like he he falls apart here and we see him at his weakest moment and I think it's important for him to be to position that in this episode because this is a clever thing that storytelling wise Patrick Somerville is doing. And I want to remember because we talk about lessons we can learn. Like I want to remember this. He is he's mirroring the, his flashbacks. He's making them work in a way to inform the present. Right. So in the past, he had a fall and everything went wrong and it was almost like a tragic fall. Um and in the in the present, he is on the precipice of potentially having that happen again. And the question becomes, will he learn from his past or is he doomed to repeat it? Um, and, and that's where we see, I think, Clark's Clark's art kind of play out from here. Who's there? Which Clark? And I was going to mention the title, the, the Who's There, which is literally the very first line of dialogue in Hamlet. Um, and it's the centuries. On the battlements outside the castle, outside Elsinore, and they are at readiness. They are, they are preparing for some possibility of war, and so they're all jumpy. You know, one of the guards is coming to relieve him. He says, "Who's there?" It's like, isn't know, it a ghost? Who's just there? it's just me. Well, the that's what I was thinking. Horatio, her, well, Horatio, they're waiting for Horatio, but it was uh, Francisco comes to relieve Bernardo, and and then or. Bernardo comes to relieve Francisco. Francisco leaves and is not seen again in the play. But so they're waiting on the battlements for for um, Horatio to uh, to see what they've seen twice already, which is they've already seen the ghost. But Shakespeare puts his heads it up. It's it's night. It's it's midnight. It's cold. The air is bitter and cold, and they're distrustful of each other. There's a whole scene with Horatio explains why why they're out here. Um, why they're having guard duty? Um, it's because the the Norwegian the Norwegian you know um, Fortinbras who's pissed off and may come and attack them. So so it's like they're jumping. In, you know who's there? It's like he knows that he's going to be relieved. You know and so and then here's Clark going like, who are you? Prove it to me. You know um, and it's like a it's an inner yeah. What do you, what does he call? It? He calls it the vetting process or something like. He has something else he says. That it's difficult, difficult to do. So there's layers there about identity, and you know that's a big thing with Shakespeare too, um, and and who who is who, um, and you know there's a whole thing about drama and masks and 
uh, playing a part that's not your own. So, and Tyler is pretty good considering that he <laughs> says, okay, but when he says, I'll be Hamlet, it's like, when has he been, you know? Yeah, I would like, have liked to see uh, some evidence of him doing some acting when he was a kid, maybe, because I, I agree. It was almost. I mean, he was around he, his mom, who's an actor. He, he's so. been around actors, and I guess that's what we're supposed to just believe he's able it's to in his do blood. it. Yeah. It's in his blood. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's just a natural born. He could just—he just has Hamlet memorized, apparently enough to be able <laughs> apparently. to apparently, yeah. Well, no, the scene with his mother—you uh, know—he—he's—he's he's on the script. He's not off script yet. Oh, right, and they're performing Station Eleven here. To be fair, not not Hamlet. Ham- although they—they they, he asks him some Hamlet lines, I think, right? In yeah, this, he does. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember which line it was. Yeah, but he comes up with the right. I've never right been good line. at remembering Shakespearean lines. Like they go right out of my head. This show is also, and this story overall has made me want to revisit some, some Shakespeare. Hey, well, stay tuned for the end of our episode because we have an announcement we're going to be making about that. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been a tease. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, a little teaser there. Um, one one thing I did want to talk about here is uh, in writing, and, and I've heard this is just uh, as like a creative advice, is to have characters have a lie that they believe about themselves, I think, or just a lie that they believe, Right. Um, what lie does this character believe? Um, or what lie does this character believe about themselves? I, I forget. You Correct me if I'm wrong on uh, the way that's said. But a lot of people give this advice for characters, right? It's a good way to create some, like, internal conflict. And I felt like, uh, our, uh, in, my, in my imagining, Clark says his here. Because he tells Arthur, I don't want to be you. At one point when uh, he's in his lowest moment, right? And I thought, like, that's a lie, I think, right? Like, Clark kind of wants to be Arthur, right? And and that's really where some of my conflict comes up with with Clark being this leader. Like, is he, it seems so much, especially in the first half that he's doing it for the right reasons, but this all recontextualizes, this, this like struggle that he has with Arthur recontextualizes him in the spotlight becoming the leader and giving these extravagant speeches that everybody loves. Wanting to wear the crown. And is that, a, is that an attention-seeking uh, moment as well? Or is it both? Which it probably is. Because we see that and that that's the others in the previous when he's talking to Arthur and he says, you're great and you don't deserve to be like, you've got this greatness and you lucked into it or cause everybody finds you charming. Um, and then that's you blow jealousy, it up. Right? You always blow it up. It's jealousy. Yeah. Right. And he lies to himself and says he's not Right. Exactly. There's some changes to Elizabeth as well, right? Like from the book, oh, she lot, was yeah. this religious zealot. And I, I do like the changes that were made for Elizabeth because she's far more complex and being a part of this triumvirate and then really challenging Clark's authority in, in bringing the, wanting to bring the traveling symphony, having it be like a five-year plan that she'd been pushing in. And the way that she wants to open the doors to the public as well, like she wants to open the doors to the airport and have it be... Because obviously they've been so isolated. Yeah. yeah, there's a number of religious elements to the book that were, that Somerville kept out, right? I mean, in fact, Tyler himself was a religious. His his were all religious based. All of his uh, problems with the world. Yeah, that's something that I really liked in the book too. That that was kind of yeah, like the villainy of the <laughs> this everything happens for a reason line and how that can yeah. be poisonous. And then yeah, we don't really get that here. And we're all the heroes of our own story, so you know that's he was a villain. And yeah, he knew it. <laughs> But he thought nobody thought he was doing it right, so that's the lie he believed. Right, uh, there is a line here that I just want to shout out because I loved it. Sarah gives it 
Um, and I think it, to me, the implication is like, I'm, I'm just too tired to go on. I, do, I can't keep up with the things I've been doing. But she says, my bones is cold. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was great. My bones is it cold. Really I'm going to start saying that when, just <laughs> when I mean I'm t- when I'm done. Yeah, my bones is, is cold. When, when Kirsten isn't looking down, right? Yeah, the, I think you're right. Yeah, when she, when she hears yeah. it or yeah. say that. It might be that might be that moment. Um, yeah, I just like that. Oh, and then also we got the torch. Okay, so the torch fake out I thought was smart, right? Like uh, he lights up this like memorial thing and it draws out Clark to come see it. And I was like, oh, that's the torch because we keep hearing I'm going to light the torch and you'll know when it happens. Um, and then uh, that's not actually the torch. The torch is the tower itself that explodes at the end. Um, which, you know, again, it's like makes us as viewers be like, no, he had so many like little things that he had. The museum. In there, the museum. It was something that like I, I really identified with like that, that want to preserve knowledge mm-hmm. and everything like that, that, that Clark was doing. So that for them to destroy it in the show was very surprising. Well, I guess if they had to have some carnage, that was better than all the children blowing up. <laughs> the yeah, entire airport and everybody so, what? But, yeah I felt like that was kind of a dangling thread at the end we can touch back on but like what, what exactly the plan in the, was in the book one of my favorite moments in the book is is there in the tower but that's near the end yeah I, I want to talk about that a little bit too when we get to yeah. the end uh, yeah I think let's move to the next episode so episode 9 is called Dr. Chaudhry almost a year after the outset of the virus Kirsten and Jeevan seek refuge in a lakeside cabin during winter the pair are at odds over Kirsten's persistent reading of Station Eleven. Jeevan argues that the pair need to find more people, while Kirsten is mad that Jeevan made them leave Frank's apartment. While walking back from searching houses for supplies, Jeevan secretly tosses Kirsten's graphic novel while she checks her rabbit traps. That night, Kirsten finds out, and the two have an argument. Trying to make amends, Jeevan goes out at night to retrieve the graphic novel, only to be attacked by a wolf. Waking up to severe wounds, he drags himself across the snow, trying to return to Kirsten. He passes out before reaching the cabin and is found by Lara, who happened to drive by on her motorcycle. Jeevan is forced to recover from his foot amputation amongst a group of strangers who rescued him, most of whom are pregnant women desperately in need of another doctor besides Terry. Jeevan is devastated to learn from Lara that Kirsten had disappeared, but decides to stay at the birth center and assist with multiple births as a doctor. Afterwards, Jeevan returns with Laura to the cabin where he realizes Kirsten is truly gone. In the present, Jeevan lives with Laura and their children at a lakeside cabin. Jeevan leaves for a house call but promises his daughter he will return in a few days. We have uh, Jeevan wearing another mask here, right? He ends up becoming Dr. Chaudhry, I think. Uh, and uh, it, it's, again, like the roles we play. EMT in the book. Yeah. So, are going, becoming an EMT. He's in training, yeah. Yeah. The... This, the full circle part of Jeevan being this helper, right? That's the first thing we learn about Jeevan is he wanted to run on stage in the book and in the show. In the book, he had prior knowledge as to how to actually administer a CPR and that kind of thing. And he rushes on stage being the first person to see this heart attack. And in the show, he doesn't. But he runs up because he wants to help the situation. And that's Jeevan all the way through the story that we see. And like he's always wanting to help. And sometimes he can't. And... Even in the case of Kirsten, he takes he helps her, even though he may not have been the best equipped to do it. He was the only person to do it. And then to come all the way to this, I felt was this is one of my favorite episodes. I don't think it's my favorite, but one of my favorites. And all the stuff that we get with Jeevan amongst these pregnant women and helping, that stuff was extremely powerful in a pandemic 
apocalypse story that I think we normally don't get that sort of that's the ray of hope, right? Like that scene was so hectic and I felt so bad for for Jeevan because he's just learning as it's happening. And and uh, I thought, you know, it was awesome to see him actually lend a hand and help and it work out. So I have a a love hate relationship with this episode. Yeah. (laughs) So this is like that. So I couldn't when I said my least favorite episode, uh, I think part of this was my least favorite. So, but what was the first episode we talked about definitely was, was weaker all around. Um, Everything about Jeevan and Kirsten in this life, just, you know, because in the book, you don't hit, you don't get any of this, obviously, because they, yeah, because they put it, yeah, together. And we see like, we see the life, we see how the hardship in this early time, including the wolves, which I think if I remember was uh, referenced earlier in the, in the series that they're out there because mostly Somerville is, is just concentrating on the, on the joy. It's not, it's not the road, right. <laughs> for example, which we need to, we need to cover James because it's very different than this. <laughs> it's not the walking dead. He didn't want to dwell on that, but here we get to see a uh, life can is pretty shitty out there. And you got a young Kirsten who's learning to take charge in, in many ways. So, and I love the, the part about the healer stuff and him becoming a healer and that last scene in particular, you know, in his new life. And, and this is where he ends the book and the, you know, and the book ends with him going off doing it and he doesn't come, and he doesn't come back. Yeah. But, to, like basically what he was in the book is what we kind of arrive at. And I was, I did not think we were going there with Jeevan. So I was, I was happy to see that. But the whole thing with the, the women and the nurses, I mean, for the, I know he was partially delirious or something like that, but it just it just rubbed me the wrong way. Because she comes off so crazy she does. and like you know, and unhinged and by the end of that section she's like I you know, I, we did the right thing for you and you did the right thing and it was all a test or whatever. I mean talk about tests, faith, but but I feel like you could have done that with there's just a few there or something and not like all these women. It was so bizarre. It was yeah. very bizarre. Well, all these women pregnant all at the same time, and they're going to give birth at the same time, and um, and I know, you know like like you mentioned, James, is the the hecticness of it, you know, and I think they could have gotten to that sooner, you know, perhaps because I like that hectic moment when he's going from back, you know, it's like go help her, right, and then see, you know, and actually helps the birth, and that's where he realizes, you know, just damn it, I am a healer after all, yeah, um, or they, he's told, she tells him, um. So I just, yeah, my brain was going like, what? What the hell is this? I think that's part of why I liked it because it was so crazy. It, it, was, like, it was bizarre, was... yeah. It's it's bookended by such wonderful scenes. The opening, you know, where it, where he makes the change and the end where, where he ends up as a healer. And at just the end of that episode when he said, I'll be gone a while, you know, his daughter. And it had that long shot of him going out to the pier waiting. And that one sh- that a lonely sh- fish jumps and the lake, you know, it's like, was that by accident? <laughs> by <the laughs> yeah, man's, I'm not sure. The man's that do that, or the, is that digitally manipulated? And then it cuts there. It's like, oh my god, that's great. I love that because that that's that's where it ends. That's good. I want to back up and talk a little bit about the the start of the episode with uh, the the wolf attack, um, which I thought was interesting because we didn't ever really, like really see the wolf other than just like a blur at one point when it's when it takes him down. I think there was a decision Come on, made. Everybody there. was stopping, right? Did you stop to see? Did you, like, I didn't stop it. No, freeze frame? Not, did you freeze frame? Yeah, oh, the second time around, I was freeze framing it. What did it look like? It looked like a blur. Okay, blur, <laughs> I guess. Not, not great, I imagine. Um, it, 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 you know, it was fine. It, you know, uh, 
we didn't really see. I think we saw a dead wolf as a flash, like in a different episode. I think maybe Kirsten looking at it. I don't know. The moment I loved was he is, uh, this is after he's been attacked and he throws this blanket over his head. And then all of a sudden we get the shot inside where the, the light coming through the blanket just looks really cool. And I'm always like, that's something that I love that when directors can do, they're just like, find some clever little way to make the scene look interesting. And it does here. It completely changes the way the scene looks. Um, but he is, he's, he pulls out the, the comic, which I don't even know if he, I believe that someone would do this, but he's like looking at it and he kind of starts to read it. And then he goes fucking pretentious. And I just laughed out loud when he said that. Cause I was like, you kind of do need someone to say that at some point in the show. <laughs> and I love that it's Jeevan going like, this is fucking over the top. <laughs> like, um, Cause it's like everybody's treating it as this magical text that that is so profound, and I just love to have somebody look at it and go like, "This is bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> I knew it couldn't be just as simple as like he's gone because a wolf got him. You know, like clearly, like maybe a wolf got him and something happened. I thought I really thought it was going to be like somebody like made it seem like a wolf right, got him. Yeah, like, some, like it, some group it, there of was a wolf, but that wasn't him. actually what happened. Yeah, I kind of right. felt the same way. Um, but that, yeah, I was surprised. And, and, you know, and I think what Patrick Somerville did here was like, he, he knew he wanted to do this healer arc for Jeevan. And I think he leaned into absurdism. He was like, cause he could have done like, a a, a a hospital with a bunch of injured people who've had different kinds of injuries, gunshot wounds, maybe like there's a bunch of different injured people. You have a beleaguered doctor who is over their head and and can barely keep up with it and Jeevan needs to help out. That would be like the obvious way to do it. And instead he was like, that's too obvious. What can I do that would be really weird and almost absurd? And I think he came up with this this pregnant women idea because there's a, yeah, there's a group of 20 pregnant women and there's one doctor and she's kind of out of her mind and um, he'll wake up in this moment and like, he won't even, he'll ask him, am I dead? Cause he won't believe that this is real. <laughs> He's surrounded by pregnant women. Like what is happening right now? It's pushing believability, which I think the story does. Yeah. A lot. And, and the benefit is you go absurd. It's kind of funny. Like you kind of laugh at it. Cause you're like, this is, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. It was wild that, that scene. And I think maybe the most, and I applaud them for this really. I think maybe the most graphic birth I've ever seen on, yeah. on screen. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was totally surprised. I wanted to ask you, James, uh, if you have any thoughts about this, how do you do that? Because I, I was like, yeah. it looked real, but I'm like, can it be? It has to not be real, right? Yeah, I mean, it's either prosthetics, so do it practically, or it's CG, but I would assume CG if I had to guess. What a, what a choice, huh? Yeah. I guess you want to show... You want to show the miracle of life or something, so you like put it on screen. Maybe something that I haven't seen before in a show, so that I guess there's always bonus points for doing that. It was something. <laughs> and then, yeah, tying it back into what Patrick was talking about with the like Tyler shows up, and there's this like lingering mystery of this this girl Rose keeps talking about David's coming for me, David, and like you can put the pieces together and realize it's Tyler, and then you're doing the math like he couldn't be the father, right? pretty certain by the end they make it clear but i was predicting that rose's baby was alex and pretty certain that that's why he's like holding tyler's holding the baby and he's like i can't bring it with me can i and he's so connected to alex in the present so i kept thinking alex from the traveling symphony was this baby that rose gave birth to it if that wasn't clear in the show i thought maybe it would have been i'm not sure i mean in advance if you were you had figured it out you thought pretty sure then yeah i like that i mean it's not something i was yeah definitely picking up on but it seemed like another way to tie these characters together. And it also goes along that like change for Tyler and how they're positioning him. The conversation he has with the doctor, I thought was really important for Jeevan. Um, he has this conversation with the doctor and she says, 
uh, something to the effect of being present for death, being just being there, bearing. I think she says even says bearing witness um, is the job. And I immediately thought about all of the images we've seen in the pandemic of doctors and nurses being at the bedside of people dying from COVID and holding their hands and being there because family can't because of the protocols, right? They can't even be in the room and how we hear about people who are getting burnt out because they, you know, they're doing this day in and day out. And then people are obviously not even believing that it's real and all this bullshit. But I felt like that was a, a moment that was connecting within the story for what Jeevan is doing, but also just to us, right, as viewers and what we're living through right now and, and positions this show into being like a really timely uh, and, and, and profound thing that's the, uh, dealing with stuff that we're dealing with in the real world. Yeah, I have two sisters who are nurses, and, and uh, one of my sisters, her daughter, was working in the COVID ward too as a, a, a nurse, a nurse, early nurse practice. I forget what she was doing, but, and my sister was CNA maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And my sister was in the cancer ward and she's always been in the cancer ward. So she was like literally talk about head to toe <laughs> covered up because you, no way you could get any of that in there. Um, and then my other, then I have a third sister, um, who was, uh, was the head of it at the hospital. So they, just, you know, she just saw, they all saw all this stuff. And this is in Montana, but you know, yeah, I got hit very, really hard. very, very, very much, you know, deniers a lot of things. It's like, don't tell me that people aren't dying. <laughs> you know, I. It's like, they. My, I have family, you know, who's seen it um, yeah. and held some hands too. And be- and bearing witness is the job at that point because there's nothing else they can do. Yeah. And 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 it's a, it's an important part of it. Yeah. Right, and it becomes important. I mean, obviously, we see that fruition next next episode. Yeah, and that's something that Jeevan realizes he can do even without his training. He can bear witness. And I guess that maybe maybe that is the answer to the birth scene is he's also bearing witness to the beginning of a life. And, and then we see him see so many lives end, too. Um, and, and that's something that Jeevan can do. Um, and he does it well. And it's and it is an important job. Yeah, And you have the I mean, and again, very symbolically, I mean, that we see new life and new births happening in a new world. Yeah. Luke, you talked earlier about the power of the of the medium. And I wanted to talk about a scene that just hit me like a like a tsunami, which was the um, the scene where Jeevan comes into the into the cabin looking for Kirsten, and then finds the compass, sits down, and says, "I'm not okay." The flash of the hugs, yeah, the hug, and then flashes through Kirsten and Jeevan, and the score rises, and it's this like that was one this of my amazing, moments. powerful moment. That was one of my tear moments. And he's wearing her jacket. Right. I realized that, too, like the jacket she's wearing at the beginning, he has it on. I don't know if it's been split open or something, but it's got a very particular color pattern. Um, And I think as an adult, like later on in the cabin, he's wearing it at one point. And I I was like, are they positioning him in a different way here in the dynamic of the relationship? And I don't know, like uh, I thought that something was going on with that, too. But yeah, that scene, that scene was was spectacular. And it does lead me to wanting to ask about something else. But I'll let Patrick weigh in first. That cut of all the was like there's literally five or six of them, of them going in for hugs. Like, gosh, did we saw all those? I guess we did. Yeah. So that's yeah. So the opening and the ending for me was just like so powerful. So that reminds me uh, of the compass, and I wanted to ask you you both about that. So so there's a compass given to Kirsten by Frank, I believe, and it is broken, and it always points east. And I was like, 
this means something. Uh, so someone, you've given a character a broken compass that always points east. Um, not just always points in one direction, but specifically east, where the sun rises, right? So I don't know if that if that is what they're going for there, and, and just if either of you had thoughts on the significance of the compass. Pretty certain right as he gives it to her, that same episode, he talks about like his apartment being home, the condo apartment where he lives being home, and he was very particular about talking about his east-facing window yeah. where that amazing sunrise comes up. And they talked about it being the east and then him giving her a compass that always points east as in points like what, to something that would remind her of home. Um, that was what I drew mm. to be the, yeah, the I like that. meaning behind it. But it's also just a symbol of, of Frank, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and the fact that he sees it laying there, you know, it, you know, so it's also a message, you know, it's a very mm-hmm. clear message that he needs to move on that I that I left and I'm OK. And I made my decision. And he knows better than anybody that she's going to be fine. <laughs> she's like, wow. You know, with a knife thing, she's like, you're looking really good, you know, earlier on. And, and if, if this compass is a way to point home, like you mentioned, James, I kind of like that. Like a point east, point point towards maybe her time, those first hundred days in, in, in the condo. And she's left it. Um, and I think that's heartbreaking to Jeevan in this moment because it feels like, has she is she lost now? Um, and she kind of is right. And then she ends up that her, her whole journey is more about like finding her way back. But, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that contributes to him breaking down in this moment. So moving on here, episode 10 is called unbroken circle at the outset of the virus. Miranda asks clerk to care for Elizabeth and Tyler before her death. She calls the pilot of a plane arriving from Chicago and convinces him to keep all passengers on board when arriving at Severn City Airport so as not to spread the virus to those inside. In the present, Kirsten and the Traveling Symphony are freed from their quarantine to perform a play for the community at the airport. Jeevan also arrives at the airport to tend to Clark's burn injuries after the fire and sits with Sarah as she peacefully passes away. The Traveling Symphony performs Hamlet with Elizabeth as Gertrude, Clark as Claudius, and the Prophet as Hamlet, which allows him to reconnect with his past as well as forgive Clark and his mother. Kirsten shows one of the Prophet's children, who suddenly appears at the airport, the Station Eleven graphic novel, to dissuade her from further violence. Jeevan finally reunites with Kirsten almost 20 years since their separation. Elizabeth and Tyler peacefully leave the airport with the children and Alex. Jeevan and Kirsten go their separate ways, but promise to reunite next year at the airport community, which Kirsten promises to add to the wheel. Here we are. We've come to the finale, the final... uh play as well as 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 somerville you know brings it back one more time to have the play within a play except for like really on the nose this time we got tyler as hamlet and we've cast you know elizabeth you know and and uh clark in the play in roles that are similar to the roles they played in his real life and we have kirsten directing it um and that that's sort of the the crux of the finale and the climax of the show is around this play there's an element of real danger in, in, in introduced and in, in tyler actually has a real knife that we've seen kill people multiple times um and i wanted to get your thoughts as someone who knows shakespeare better than us uh better than me for certain uh patrick and me what was somerville doing here by by using hamlet and having these characters play these particular roles well that scene which is literally directly after the ghost of Hamlet's father uh, appearing but before Hamlet has seen it Hamlet always makes mention how fast obviously that his mother married Claudius now there's no marriage to, you know from Elizabeth and 
Clark, but it may be a metaphorical marriage. They they've come together to run this right because community. at one point in the earlier episode, you know, this is your uncle Clark. It's like, well, not really your uncle, but the, in the in the play in the scene, it's it's both Claudius and Gertrude trying to get Hamlet to throw off that woe. You know, it's like it, you've done your morning and you should take off the black cloak, <laughs> the inky black cloak, and and say we're good, you know. And Claudia says, think of us as a father. Um, and it's funny because the scene, the first scene, we see Kirsten play Hamlet in the earlier episode is what happens right after that. That's, that's just a continuation of the scene, but we get it we get it flipped. She says, um, no, I guess that's the same scene, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think there's, there's some overlap. There may be some different parts, though, yeah. Okay, I, I was confused for a second. Yeah, that's right. She, it's, Kirsten does the same thing, and, and the prophet is watching. Maybe that's how he kind of learns it a little bit, too. Yeah, but, like like me, if I watch Shakespeare played out one time, I then know it. Yeah. <laughs> and can perform mm-hmm. it. <laughs> It's Hamlet. I mean, by the end of the scene, he says, I will obey you, and I won't go back to school, and I'll stay here. He says, I do have, I really do have within the woe, you know. It's not just dark clothes. It's not just my heavy suspiration of breath and my heavy sighs and, and all this stuff. I have that within me, this this sad and this, you know, and miss my father, you know. And then shortly thereafter, he finds out the truth, you know, from the ghost. But, but where the play ends, I think Somerville missed a moment. And fulfilling a, a character, a tragic character arc, and I feel that that Tyler, and this goes back to my whole thing about redeeming him. I think you could have totally redeemed him, but I think to make that redemption complete is he would have had to do something noble at the end, but that would have also sacrificed his life. And maybe it is like trying to stop stop the children. I mean, we got Kirsten doing that um, with that are strapped with mines. <laughs> That our plan is to blow it up. I mean, it's so it's so close, right? Um, and he doesn't have to do anything to stop them. It's Kirsten who stops them, which is that's fine. But it was missing a tragic moment. I know it's all about joy, and it's joy for. I mean, you get the joy with Jeevan and Kirsten <laughs> at the end there, and and everything's good, um, and they're reconciled. But I felt there was a beat that they should have had there, and I think Tyler. I just thought. Of course, I was thinking it was going to be more like the book when I first started watching the series, but I felt like there was going to be a... Uh, once they passed that, I thought there was going to be a moment still that Tyler has to deserve, you know, get somewhat what he des- what he deserves. In Shakespearean tragedy, feeling pity for the tragic hero is really important in Shakespearean tragedy. For Hamlet, for sure, that is. He, you know, he dies, and the queen dies, and the king dies, and his father's died, and all his friends have died, Ophelia's died, and he's caused most of them in his search to try and kill Claudius, when he could have just after seeing the ghost gone into the castle and say, hey, Claudius, what? <laughs> Thanks, you're done. It wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been much of a play, but... There is that moment where I think he could have, too. Doesn't he make a decision to not kill uh, Claudius? Yes, yes. When he finally decides, after the play, it's after the play within the play, that he realizes that, that Claudius is definitely guilty, right? Because he confesses himself, and, and Horatio watches and says, yeah, he uh, is... He, he reacted. He's definitely guilty, and so he goes to kill him. And but he's praying. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah he's praying. He says because he's he's right there, and Claudius is sitting down to pray, and 
and he's going, I could do it. Now I can do it. I can do it right now and revenge him for my father. And he goes, wait, but then he's praying. I'll send him to heaven. And my father is walking as a ghost because he didn't get to do his last rites and last sins. So I got to wait until he's doing something bad and then kill him. Right. And then he leaves. And then you get Claudius' speech where he goes like, trying to pray, but I can't do it. <laughs> like, oh, man, see? Yeah, so my, my thoughts, you know, my thoughts, my words go up, but my thoughts remain below. I'm not really, I'm not asking for forgiveness after all. So he could have done it. So, yeah, I and mean, because he doesn't do that, that's the turning point of the climactic point of, the, of Hamlet, because then the bodies start flying. Okay, so thank you for all that context. That does rem- Sorry. No, that's great. It reminds me of some stuff that I had forgotten about, about the play. But I, I do want to ask you, so, like, knowing all of that, you're watching this climactic performance. Did it sell you on this character beat for Tyler, who is reconnecting with his mother, coming to terms with their relationship, and with Clark as this father figure, and having an emotional catharsis through the lens of this Shakespearean play that we're seeing sort of play out, um, and then also on top of that, you have Kirsten as the director and like uh, there's a moment where the Station Eleven uh, man is actually standing behind her in the dark. And so so Station Eleven that, and that all is is kind of in, informing all of this. Does this scene work for you in the way that you think he was going for it? Like, does that all land because um, you know so much about Shakespeare? No, no. I mean... Because I, I know what he was doing, right? And it just it was just so it's, it goes back to the problem we had with the first episode of this section, which was Kirsten being so trusting and um, of him, and it's just too quick, and the timing is so off. I mean, his kids are right out there. He's, I mean, right up to that moment, it feels like they had uh, opportunities to to reconnect even before the play, and they did somewhat, but. Like I said, I think it was missing that tragic moment. I, I felt it was forced. I love the costuming and, and, yeah. and all that stuff. It's just wonderful what they're able to do, you know. Um, and the performances too. The actors on the performances stage. are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty good, definitely. And in fact, Tyler, Tyler, and his lines, you know, that's the most emotional we see him. But he's finally dealing with all that pent up, repressed anger. So that rings true. I just, you know, I was just like, it was, it was me again with my arms crossed, going like, <laughs> "Where did you? Why are we going here? I don't know. It seems like you could have spent this much of the show doing something else, maybe." But for me, it was like, I, it was, it was a, it was a clever idea, and I could tell that it was like he wanted to do this. He was setting it up all along. He wanted the climax to play out with this scene within a scene, play within a play and have all the characters playing their roles in, in the loose way that they uh, you know line up to these to these uh hamlet roles it does rely on a level of knowledge from the viewer of hamlet which is a kind of a tall ask in my opinion um as someone who's read i have read the play i've seen it before i think i saw like the mel gibson adaptation or something so like i've seen it and i've read it yet i still didn't remember it that enough to like remember exactly what's going on perfectly well in the scene but I was able to connect with it, I think, okay. And um, it still didn't quite pay off for me as, as well. Like, it, it, was, it was almost trying to do too much. It, it was getting a little bit kind of too proud of itself, I think, with, with what it was trying to accomplish here. And I'd seen this show do this kind of scene better. Like, when, when um, Kirsten performs Hamlet early on, I thought it was spectacular. 
the the performance they give in the tower was really really good like there there was these moments that really really worked and this needed to be the best of them all to be positioned at the end and it just isn't and um i think it's because kirsten's the one we really care about and and instead you're taking tyler and you're making him hamlet you're making him the main character and you're making us try and care about what's going on with tyler and i was just never sold that i should like this guy in fact, I still viewed him as someone who is basically a child murderer. <laughs> so it was tough for me to like care about him. And like, sure, like I, I want him to be redeemed in some way, but to position him in this spot at the center of our of our attention, uh, it just it struggled to connect with me. And I, I was left feeling a little cold um, from this scene. And I feel like that that's one of the, my main criticisms of of where the show ended is because of this and the Tyler the Tyler arc, which we can continue to talk about at the end. We see this, this group of children and he walks off with Alex. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know where they're going. Um, I don't know how we're supposed to really feel about it. Clark says, what the fuck? And I kind of felt the same way. (laughs) I was like, are we supposed to feel good about this? Is he now not a villain? Elizabeth goes with him. He's got Alex with him. He's never really paid the price for the deaths of these children. And that's what you were talking about. Like, he's got to pay some sort of price for this, and he never does, or at least not a price that is, you know, commiserate to to the infraction. I thought for sure Elizabeth would die, and that would be part of it for him, is is that, so for, like, him having loss in a way and, and dealing with it. And I thought he might be, like, doomed to, to survive and be one of the survivors and have to live with all of the things that he's done and everybody else has done. Well, we never get a moment where he he uh, seems to realize he was wrong in some way. No, yeah, you don't, other than, yeah, the speech. And the, maybe the fact that he doesn't knife him, but... <laughs> yeah, are we supposed to interpret through the lens of Hamlet that he has realized he was wrong? Like, that's a tall ask, and I didn't I didn't get there. And really, uh, this episode 10 is Kirsten's. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem I also have it is this really should be Kirsten. We've seen the snippets of Kirsten from both before and after. It's her arc. She's the director. Yeah, that's part of the problem when you have all these characters coming together, which, you know, Mandel didn't have to do as much in her book, you know, um, although she has confessed that, you know, that was a good idea of, of, of having Jeevan and Kirsten, you know, in the room with Frank. Um, she I thought, thought about that's that. my favorite change. I, I love that change. We got so many great scenes from that. But that was the change that was making me go, okay, <laughs> this is going to work too. Cause um, you know, uh, but it works. And there's another visual callback to her in the uh, condo and the way the windows look is just like the tower. Yeah. So I like that, that like her at the center of this things and viewing through a window and all that. They were definitely playing with us, uh, whether Jeevan and, and, Kirsten would, oh, would yeah. reconnect or not. And I thought Walking for a second the they weren't going to. Because <laughs> Sam goes by in the back like, what? No. She no, doesn't turn, turn around turn in around. time. Yeah. I felt it was inevitable still. I, I figured yeah. it was happening and I was waiting for it. You know, but It was a nice relief. It was, you know, it, th- this story ultimately isn't as bleak as I think some other stories like this are. And, and you know, they, they, let, they let us have the happy ending of most of the main characters and even Tyler surviving it. And, you know, which, you know, to varying degrees of success. Like, you know, it's it's very different it was a different story honestly you know i think i think the first half of the show stays pretty true to the novel and the second half decides to to be its own story well uh, despite the big change and that's where where a lot of it gets led um so for kirsten her arc i think is is all about needing to learn to be able to say goodbye i think sarah says something to that or effect to her about how you got to learn to say goodbye um because she's not good at it she loses people along the way and she can't handle it like that's her whole problem with alex she can't handle losing somebody 
Um, and and she has to learn that it's okay to say goodbye, right? Because she lost Jeevan at one point and never got to say goodbye to him. Um, and when she's walking with Jeevan at the end, um, she does say goodbye to him in a way that we have not seen her be able to do up until now. And I think that completes her arc. Yes, but it's also not a final It's not a final either. goodbye. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see you next year. I'm, you know, I'm adding you to the wheel. I'm adding the, the airport to the wheel because I'm the director now. Here she is. She's found her her place in the world. Symphony is her family. She even has his family. So this is my family. And he says, oh, there goes there goes your family. He says, yep. She does say goodbye to Alex, seemingly in a, in a real way to me, because we don't know. She says, now? Yeah. She goes like, now? And then says, yep. And walks yeah, off. so, so kind it's, of it's says a goodbye. Little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was a little uh, less emotional than I expected it would have been. Well, they had a conversation earlier where she said, like, I'm going to go with him, right? Like, there was another conversation where she she was forced to sit, sort of say that here. But there's a lot of goodbyes in this in this episode, and so you got to be careful about too many <laughs> too many hugs. <laughs> and we saw the hugs with Chiefin and Kirsten, you know, um, in that flashback, and we don't need too many too many others, you know, because we got the other goodbye with Miranda too in this episode. Um, I don't know if I just if I just yeah. want something that is impossible, but like the moment of like them seeing each other again and and um, all of that coming back and her realizing he's alive. And him realizing she's alive, like in in that moment, it was good, but it wasn't. I don't know. Like I really wanted that to be like I was in tears or something. I wanted something more from that moment. Instead, it kind of got like we got a taste of it, and then it cuts away. And I kind of wanted to have that a little bit more of that first conversation. Like I want to know what they say here. I know we're not always going to get that stuff, especially in a visual medium. I think that was Somerville saying like I can't write something that's going to be satisfying for the situation. And that, that's probably, that's why I'm saying it might be impossible to like really deliver on that. Yeah. It was more hopeful than I expected the story overall. I think James, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you weighed in, but like how, what did you think of that final climactic scene through Shakespeare? I think you were pretty much right on with the fact that when Kirsten performs Hamlet, it was more affecting to me. It feels like we're retreading the same ground. I do get that it's, it's emotional and it's heavy for Tyler, but again, yeah, I wasn't super sold on Tyler being this like, now he's a character we should really care about. I was pretty much right along the same lines as you guys. Were they setting up a season two here? Is there any chance of a season two? Because it did feel like we had some some dangling plot lines. It feels to me like Tyler's story is still unfinished in some way. Um, I, I kind of hope they don't, but... I think it's been called a limited series, and I really hope there wouldn't be more. But I did read somewhere, Somerville said, it'd be interesting to uh, see what happens in year 25. I almost felt that. I almost felt like he was leaving a door open. I think it's done, he said, but, you know, if it is, it depends on how it did. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if the powers that be say, we want another season of this. Got? We've seen this happen in other other shows, right? Even The Leftovers, speaking of The Leftovers, based on a novel, and I think most of the novel takes place in the first season, and then after that, he went beyond. So he has he has oh, a, okay. a experience doing this sort of thing, so he probably was leaving the door open, but unfortunately, I think it hurts the story a little bit, because you didn't close some narrative arcs as tightly as you probably would have if you knew 100% sure you weren't going to get another crack at this thing. It felt like he was leaving some doors open a little bit. Um, and, and I don't know. It, that's all pure speculation, so it's probably not worth talking about too much. But, I, I it, you know, Good Omens 2 is happening, apparently. So, like, it, it, things can shock me where you don't think they're going to get another season, and sometimes they do. We've got to get to our final vote here. Um, so we, at the end of these projects, uh, we come on and we decide what we thought was better, uh, just for us pers- personally, 
And when we have a guest on, we like to have them go last, just in case there's a tie <laughs> that needs to be broken. Uh, you can get uh, the, you can be positioned to do that. I don't know if there will be or not this time. Uh, James, do you want to start? So when we read the book, I was completely floored by it. I love this like literary take on a genre story and like, you know, it, it was moving. It was ingenious. I mean, obviously the, the, the show as, as many times, this is the case, uh, owes almost everything to the, the original story. Um, but I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian here because I feel like I can tell the, the sort of lean of the podcast so far, the, the, our, uh, crew here of three. And I'm going to say, I'm going to take the show for the emotional weight that I think that it brought all the way through. And, you know, there were some hiccups, some things that I wish were different, some things that didn't hit quite perfectly. I thought it was very ambitious to try to like really thread Hamlet in as integral as they did to the plot of the story, especially nearing the end. Um, you know, bold. Did I think it worked every time? No, but I, I appreciate it for that. And, you know, through the, the whole scene, I enjoyed myself the entire time. And I think it's definitely one of the one of the most enjoyable experiences of a, of a show I've watched in a little while yeah. here. So definitely loved it. I love both. Um, I, I I absolutely adored the novel when I read it. Um, I think you can hear my enthusiasm in that first episode. Um, and I, I really like this show a lot. I, I love a lot the changes that were made. And in fact, if I were to go back and read Station Eleven now, I would miss um, Kirsten and and Jeevan's relationship, how it plays out. In, in, you know, with with Frank and that, like that would feel like a miss to me. And so, in some ways, it's introduced some weaknesses into the book. Uh, uh, going back, where I'm like, oh, I wish that this was in there. I wish this was in there. Um, but ultimately, I, these are two different tones, right? Like the book is like an it's like an elegy. It's commemorating society and talking about uh, our modern lives through the lens of it ending, which is something I said in the previous episode. And I think that that was like the goal for Mandel. And and Somerville is doing something different here. He's really creating a Shakespearean, dramatic, high blood, high blood, high body count um, uh, version of this story. Uh, there's a lot more knifing of people, and it's more dramatic, and um, it really works in a visual medium. Um, but there was those few missteps I've highlighted where I feel like he didn't quite quite achieve what he was setting out to do, in my opinion. Um, so that holds it back a little bit for me too. So I think there are some potential weaknesses in both sides. Um, we're to where it is almost a tie. Um, I did, I did. There's a lot to love here, but um, as much as I don't want to be the homer for the book uh, as the writer, um, I am going to give it to the novel. Um, ultimately, it's it, it, whenever there's a situation where it's almost a tie for me, it's gonna, it's like the novel's gonna take it, and because uh, it's the source, and I got to give credit to the author. And there was a lot of brilliance there, and, and I don't want to. I think there's some recency bias that can come in where like I've this is the most recent thing I've experienced now. And so anyway, um, it, it, to me, I'm going with the novel. Um, I, I did love it. And uh, I think we're going to be talking about that novel at the end of the year is one of my favorites when we recap the year. So um, I got to give it up, give it up. Um, it was very good. And I'll give it there. So we are at a tie. And that means that Patrick, you're going to be the tiebreaker. I'm going to be the tiebreaker. huh? Where did you fall? You know, I actually hated the novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't believe you. I don't, you don't believe me. Um, there was a lot, as I already mentioned, there was a lot of defensive defensiveness of me watching yeah. it. I really enjoyed it, and I really loved what what Tamaruba was doing. Um, I found a lot of it I wasn't emotionally invested in, and a good chunks of it. But then there were this, these moments that floored me, right? And we've talked about a few of them. And of course, the moment, right? I mean, I don't know that I've ever had tears flowing down my face as much as I did with a, just a look, right? 
of, of her like stopping and going and turning and Jeevan's there looking in and there. I just start. So that, so that moment is the, in, uh, when they reconnect at the end, is that the one you're referencing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I figured it was everybody with the moment, <laughs> the moment. Hmm. Yeah. The most emotional I've ever, uh, I felt in a long, long time watching a show. Um, I'll get those kind of moments with reading the book too. And again, it's been long enough. I don't remember all the emotional moments, yeah. um, reading the book, but, um, so, Though that re- that moment redeemed redeemed a lot of the missteps, but I still feel that you know, particularly the because it was as as Luke said, the whole Hamlet stuff is um, that he tried to do that he did do um, was a ri- was risky, <laughs> and uh, and I applaud him for trying it. But it, it was there were a lot of missteps for me in that because you know I mean Shakespeare's he wrote Hamlet at, at a time when. There was a pandemic there, the plagues, right? It wasn't just one plague. It was a series of plagues. We just kept going and rolling for a while. Um, and he lost his son, you know, Hamnet. So I see what he's doing. I know what he was doing. But not everybody knows the, the Shakespeare connection as much. As you mentioned, it's particularly Hamlet. It's a long, complex play. But I, I love the idea of art, you know, and and the traveling symphony. And, you know, survival is insufficient, right? The, the Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. And that's a moment in the book and moments in the book that I, I loved and I love the literary aspects of the book and what I can, and what Mandel did. And now even more knowing the connections she's made from other novels. Um, so the book is a win for me overall. That's, that's my vote, but I, I still enjoy the series a lot. So that seems appropriate to me. I'm glad you, you stuck to your guns with the show. Cause I think it deserves at least one vote. Cause it was very good. Um, but the, the novel's going to take it here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick, uh, for this discussion. It has been so much fun. It has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Can you let our listeners know if they wanted to uh, follow you online? Like, are, you have a Twitter, you have a, any social media accounts. Where are you active? Yeah, I um, as I talk to my students and go and when I first meet them and talk about, like, I have four websites I have to keep up. <laughs> um, I have my author site. It's uh, patrickswenson.net. Um, and then my book publishing company, Fairwood Press, um, fairwoodpress.com. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter, but I'm not a good tweeter. I'm not, I don't <laughs> do much in, on Twitter other than Fairwood stuff and occasionally other odds and ends and Instagram. And that's about where I live. What, what are your handles on, on uh, Twitter and Instagram? I'm supposed to know these, huh? <laughs> Instagram, it's just Patrick. Dot Swenson, I think is that. It, it, I'll find them and I'll put them in the show notes. So if people want to want to follow you, they can. Uh, it is it has been awesome having you on. Uh, someone who wears many different hats in in the publishing industry. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's perfect for this kind of for this kind of project. And um, you know, I think I think it was great. Um, so I hope I hope people do uh, go out and follow you and, and read your books and and check out Fairwood Press, which has a lot of excellent uh, novels on there and and different kinds of books. Um, definitely look into that. And thanks a lot for joining us. So if you wanted to check out Patrick's writing, uh, we are actually going to put his novels on our bookshop site, which I will link in the show notes. You can go on there, click that link, and uh, it'll be under the guests. I think it's we called it the guest list. And I'll have his books on there. And if you buy them using that link, you will be supporting him. You'll be supporting us. So there's a lot of uh, benefit to doing it that way. And uh, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and if you wanted to support us another way, consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. 
And uh, we have bonus episodes monthly, and we also do uh, all kinds of stuff over there. We have merch, cups, shirts with exclusive art, also Patreon exclusive art. So if you're interested in any of that, check that out. Absolutely. And if you liked this episode, we'd love to know in the form of a rating and review if you haven't left one for our podcast yet. Um, it's a great, great way to get the word out. And, uh, you know, we, we always love to see them pop up. Make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, here we are at the end. All that's left to do is to announce our next project, which we alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, we are going all the way back to a Shakespearean play ourselves. We are going to dive into the world of Shakespeare. I still don't know how I'm going to talk about Shakespeare in a single episode, but I'm going to try. Um, and yeah, we're going to read Macbeth. Yep. Uh, and, and that's, you know, because of this new adaptation that has been made that everyone's raving about and I'm super excited to watch. Yeah, it's called The Tragedy of Macbeth, and it is directed by Joel Cohen. So I'm so excited to dig into it. It's it's like entirely in black and white from what I understand. Denzel Washington's in it. Uh, I've heard nothing but great things, and like I've wanted to cover it so bad, or at least watch it so bad, and now we're getting to cover it. I'm such a sucker for a great Denzel performance, and I feel like I haven't seen one in a little while, so I'm so excited for that. This is going to be so good. Yeah, and and uh, it's going to be a journey, you know. Uh, and if you if, if you want to join us for that, we'd love to have you. That'll be next week. And then you know what? After that, I'm sure we're going to do something a little more like lowbrow genre stuff because it's feeling like we need to we need to break it up a little bit now. But this does feel like a, a cool book ending, right? Of 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 doing Station Eleven and then moving right into Shakespeare. And it yeah. feels appropriate. People are just going to look at the list of podcasts this year and be like, so pretentious, just like Jeevan did. <laughs> yeah, fucking pretentious, like Jeevan. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. And until next time, keep adapting. Adapting.